Well, with a view to the uh, help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn to the book of Revelation again, and chapter <coughs> 7. And uh, we read in verse 2 that John sees another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So in verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now you'll have noticed in the reading, and I mentioned it really before the reading, you'll notice that there are two visions in this chapter. And uh, there are two uh, groups of people uh, seen in the visions. In the first vision, it looks very much as though it's the Jewish church or uh, Jewish believers that we have brought together. And in the second vision, which begins at verse 9, and this is a passage of Revelation that we know well, possibly the passage, if you know the book at all, possibly the passage that you know best of all, you see a second group of people. Um, we're told in verse 9 that this great multitude comes from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So as I say, it sounds very much like a, a Jewish church in the first vision and the Gentile church in the second. But uh, when we look a bit more closely at the vision, we'll see that it's, or at the visions, uh, we'll see that it's not really quite like that. In fact, in both visions, what we have is the one church of God, uh, seen at a different time and seen from different perspectives. In the first vision, the church is brought before us as the Israel of God, which is what the church actually is, the Israel of God. And uh, although there will be a large Jewish ungathering uh, before the end comes, we believe that's what the Bible teaches, they are not going to be saved in distinction from this Israel of God. They have to be regrafted back into the people of God, which is the church itself. Today it is the church of God that is the Israel, and the Jews need to be regrafted into it. So in this first vision, the church is seen as God's Israel, God's people who are being kept from a trial upon the earth. They've been kept, of course, as you'll notice, by the seal, or the seal marks them out, and all those who have the seal are protected. In the second vision, we have the church as God's people rejoicing in heaven before the presence of God. And the reason they're rejoicing is because they have been delivered from all their tribulations including the great tribulation that comes upon the earth uh, when Satan is loosed 
just before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the church seen on earth below as the true Israel, and then the church seen in heaven above as the people of God. Now the reasons why um, I see it that way, and really most interpreters of the book of Revelation see it that way, will just become plain, I hope, as we go on. But I want this morning to look with you at the church on earth, kept as God's Israel. And tonight, God willing, we'll see the church in heaven, uh, delivered and rejoicing before God. A wonderful picture that closes the chapter. Now, these two visions are closely related to the previous chapter. And the previous chapter contains the seals that were opened by the Lamb of God. Now, it's stretching your memories, but uh, a few months we looked at these seals being opened one after the other. And you'll remember that as the seals were opened, the four horsemen of the apocalypse were released by God upon the earth. And they brought God's judgments upon the earth. Disease, famine, war, and death. These were God's messengers, and these horsemen are going to be stalking the earth until the time of the end comes. On God's appointment, they are judgments that he sends forth. And of course, that chapter culminated in the opening of the sixth seal in verse 12. If you just go back a page in chapter 6 and verse 12, you'll remember that John sees the opening of the sixth seal. <coughs> and what he sees then is the final judgment, the great and final awful judgment of God. When, behold, there is a great earthquake, <coughs> the sun becomes black like sackcloth of hair, and the moon becomes like blood. The stars of heaven fall to the earth. Verse 14, the sky recedes as a scroll, Every mountain and island is moved out of its place, and everyone, kings, great men, rich commanders, as well as the slaves, and every free man, hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. And they say to the mountains and the rocks, to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. That's the last and final judgment, and who is able to stand? So these horsemen of the apocalypse are followed by the great and final judgment of God. Now, of course, the question arises in connection with that, well, what about the church? And what about God's people? Is God uh, just going to make no difference? Is he not going to separate the righteous from the wicked? Is the whole earth to be destroyed in this last great and final judgment? You'll remember that when God was going to visit Sodom uh, with fire from heaven and destroy it, which I'll, I'll refer to in a moment too, I'll come back to that, but um, Abraham of course was aghast at the thought that his nephew Lot could be caught up in the conflagration, in the destruction and in the judgment of God, and he prayed and one of the things Abraham said is, uh, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
Far be this from you, he says, to destroy the righteous from the wicked. You remember that God famously said that if there were ten righteous men in it, he would not destroy the city. But God is a God who makes a difference. His judgments are not indiscriminate. It doesn't matter what he pours out on the earth. He always has respect to his own and he has ways of delivering his own. Uh, sometimes ways that are beyond our understanding. But that's really what chapter 7 deals with. It is really a kind of interlude before the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh, which takes you to a brand new direction in the book of the Revelation. But here's just an assurance that the last, final, terrible judgment will not overwhelm the people of God. That's what the two visions in chapter 7 are all about. Um, that's why you have the church first preserved from the judgment and in the second vision you have them delivered into glory and into the presence of God. Now, first of all, the judgment that's coming on the earth. Now, I, I don't need to really uh, describe that or delineate it in any way because we just read that at the end of chapter 6. It's a horrific judgment of the final day of judgment, a terrific description of it. Uh, the, um, the viewpoint, again, is from the earth. That's how it's seen by the inhabitants of the earth. And, of course, it's a sad thing that at last the wicked, when they realise the destruction that's coming upon them and upon the world, they utter a kind of prayer, but it's not to God. It's to the mountains and to the hills. The ignorance is, is that bad. They're just pleading for the mountains and the hills to fall upon them because they realise that this God, and of course many of them would have thought that this God was on their side and this was their God, but they realise at last, when it's too late, that the Lamb has a, a face of wrath towards them and that God has a face of wrath towards them and they pray for the mountains and the hills to cover them. But in chapter 6, just like that, you've got the standpoint from the earth. In chapter 7, we get behind the scenes. And we see this judgment from heaven's point of view. And we see it just before it begins, with a vision of the four angels who are holding back the four winds at the four corners of the earth. Now, when the Bible uses language like this, you've got to be careful with uh, language that is both symbolic and and poetic. When the Bible speaks of the earth having four corners, there are people who say, well, look, the people in those days obviously believed that the earth was a kind of flat square having four corners. No, they did not. They didn't believe any such thing. It was well known amongst the Greeks hundreds of years before Christ was even born that the world was round. It's described in Job like that as a sphere suspended in the earth. Uh, nobody thought it was square and nobody thought it had corners. It's just a poetic expression that we still use today, the four corners of the earth. It, it just has reference to the fact that uh, we speak of the north and the south and the east and the west. And in that respect, we speak of four corners. But what we have are four angels of God. And these are angels of destruction. I don't mean by that that they're evil angels. They are good angels, but they are sent on a work of judgment and they are holding the four winds as it were in their hands these winds are winds that are not gentle breezes uh, 
but ferocious and destructive winds. They come from the four corners because they are unlike any other wind. The destruction that God's going to unleash on the earth, although it's compressed at the end of chapter 6, will take a while to unfold. And part of it contains this terrible, wild upheaval that affects the sea and the land. And the trees here, I think, just simply represent all the vegetation and the growth and the source of fruitfulness upon the earth. Everything is touched by these winds which come before anything else comes. They are four winds, of course, simultaneously because they are sent by God. Distinctive winds of destruction. And they're preliminary to the final destruction. And the reason for these winds is because the time is at last fulfilled. History is not cyclical. There's a way in which it is because things have a way of repeating themselves. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that. But in the last analysis, history is linear. It had an alpha point. It's got an omega point. At this point, Satan has been let loose for the last time. And uh, evil has broken out for the last time upon the earth. And God says it is time to close world history. The angels are ready to release these winds. That is an awesome and an awful thought to think about. It's important to remember these things because, of course, there is a philosophy in the world that tells you otherwise. The theories that prevail is that the world will one day uh, cool because the sun will cool. There will be a state of atrophy. The universe itself will cool. It will start to contract again. The vast universe as we know it, it will contract until at last it becomes as small as a pinhead. And then there will be another Big Bang which will unleash a universe again until it contracts and releases again. So in millions of years' time, the sun will grow cold. You can either believe that or believe this. You can believe in these exploding pinheads or you can believe in the creation of God. But once we believe that this is true, it is a awesome thought to think that unknown to the earth, the four angels are holding back the final winds of God's judgment. Holding them back, ready to go. But God, of course, does not loosen them until he delivers his people. And you find this as another theme that goes through the Bible, that God has respect all the time to his people. That expression is used in the Bible. Uh, And I think it's a wonderful expression. You may remember we came across it actually in the Exodus. When we read that God's people began to pray in Egypt, we're told that God looked upon their sufferings and he heard their cry and God had respect unto them. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There are some expressions concerning God that um, are quite breathtaking, really. One uh, is... Uh, an expression in the letter to the Hebrews that tells us that God took an oath. I personally find that quite an amazing thing. Oaths are usually taken by us in this world because we're hard to trust. Oaths bind us to the performance of certain duties. So we pledge ourselves under the judgment of God to perform these duties. To take an oath is pretty much a confession that there's something weak in us something inherently unreliable. And then you suddenly find God 
stooping down to take an oath. Um, as though he condescends to us and says, I'm not, I'm not just going to tell you this, I'm going to pledge this. Because he could swear by no greater, we're told in the letter to the Hebrews, because he could swear by no greater than himself, he swore by himself. Um, it's easy to get too caught up in that because it's such a wonderful thing, but it's one of these expressions that does uh, take your breath away. Well, so is this one, that God has respect to his people. And every time he's unleashing a judgment upon the earth, small or great, he has respect to his people's situation in that judgment. Sometimes preserving them in it, like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Sometimes preserving them from it altogether, as he does here. Uh, I made reference to Lot in Sodom a moment ago, but <clears throat> you'll remember when the two angels went down to Sodom, uh, to bring God's fire upon that city. Um, Lot, of course, was prayed for. Uh, Lot was going to be delivered. And when the angel was telling Lot to get out of the city, the angel says these remarkable words. He says, I can do nothing until you arrive at your destination. Lot had asked that... Uh, a certain city be spared for himself to go to and the angel granted that prayer and then he said hurry he said and get out for I can do nothing until you arrive there isn't that a wonderful expression too um, from our side we, we see the necessity of escape but from God's side you see the certainty of the escape and here we're almost we're just kind of permitted to take that heaven's eye view of what's going on here. I can do nothing, the heavenly angel says, until you arrive there. That's the respect that God has for his people. But here another angel appears in verse 2. You've got the four angels holding back the judgment winds. But he sees another angel and this angel is ascending from the east. Now, the east, of course, is where the sun rises. And this angel is actually bringing the mercy of God. Um, it's possible for us to wonder whether this angel is uh, Christ himself, who is often called an angel, but I don't think he's called an angel anywhere else in the book of the Revelation. I think all angels in Revelation are distinct from the angel of the covenant, so I tend not to think that this is the Christ. But nonetheless, it is through that Christ arises as the son of righteousness, and he brings healing in his wings. And this angel is rising from the east, bringing the mercy and the grace of God onto his own people. He's given a great voice that says to stop or to hold the judgment of God and to hold it effectively until the church of God is delivered from her great tribulation. Don't harm the earth, the sea, or its vegetation and fruit until we have sealed, this is verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Now this scene reminds us of two distinct situations in the history of God's people. First of all, and 
we'll start from, from here, as it were, from now, from, from this point in the book of Revelation 2,000 years ago. If you just go back in time, 40-odd years, you'll come to the uh, destruction of... So, sorry, if you, if you go forward a few years, just two or three years from this point, you'll find the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus himself had prophesied. That destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is far more important than most of us realize <coughs> in the Bible and in the unfolding of God's providence and redemption. It's the great sign to Jews and Gentiles that God means what he says when he's going to judge. And it's the great sign of the final judgment when it comes. Jesus said before, this generation is finished, he says. In fact, while some of you are still living, I will return and I will bring God's judgment upon this land. And um, you have explicit prophecies of that. For example, in, in Luke 21 and verse 20, Christ says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You notice this is not the, the, the final judgment he's talking about, because you can escape this judgment. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and uh, those who are in the midst of her, of the city, let them depart, and let not those in the country enter into the city. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to the pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, because the siege of Jerusalem will be so awful that people literally ended up eating each other. They literally did. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will be led away captive into all the nations, not Babylon this time, but dispersed through the world, where many of them still are today, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. A time and times and half a time until Jerusalem comes back to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing is, uh, and Matthew makes this more plain, that before this siege turned into complete destruction, there was a window of opportunity where people could escape the city. Just a small window of opportunity where it was possible to escape <coughs> during the siege. It's a well-known historical fact that the only people in Jerusalem who took that opportunity were the Christians. They all left the city to a man and to a woman, and escaped to the nearby city of Pella, which I think you can still visit if you ever uh, tour the Holy Land. Nobody else fled from the city because they thought God could never allow the destruction of the city. People still have a tendency to thrust in buildings, and denominations, and history, and all this kind of nonsense. It's amazing. It's always been there. They weren't going to flee because God would spare the temple and God would spare Jerusalem. The Christians left because they remembered Christ's sermon. It's as simple as that. When you see the city surrounded, get out of it, he said. Get out. So the people of God know how to flee from the wrath to come. If you're a Christian today, you have fled from a wrath that is in some senses upon us already, 
but a wrath that is most certainly to come. You fled from it, you're safe. The rest of you are not. You're far from it, you're in the place of danger where the fire and the judgment of God is most certainly going to fall. So that's the first occasion when God's people were delivered. If you make your way back further in history and go back another 600 years, you come to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. That's the passage that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 9. You've got exactly the same situation. Everybody in Jerusalem thinking they're safe because they're in the holy city and they have the holy temple. But as Thessalonians tells us, it's always when people say peace and safety that destruction comes upon them suddenly, like travail upon a woman with child. That's often so true even at an individual level. People are extremely comfortable and cosy. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be? Peace and safety at any given time is no guarantee against the winds of God's judgment being released. But in Ezekiel 9, in in chapter 8, you've got the vision of the, the evil that's in the city and the evil that is in the temple, the evil that's connected with the worship and the eldership and so on. But then, just like in Revelation, we're suddenly given a heaven's eye view of it. We look down on it. And while all this peace and safety is there, God is summoning these six messengers, and all of them have weapons of destruction in their hands, slaughter weapons. And you notice that they come from the north this time. You don't have four winds, but they're coming from the north. The reason they're coming from the north is because Babylon's up north. And God is effectively saying to them, this is what I'm bringing on you. I'm I'm raising up this great and mighty nation for you to to beat you like a rod in my hand. Um, That's why we often need rightfully to think about what God is doing politically in the world. Is he raising a people? Is he raising an oppressor? Are oppressors coming into the land who despise our history, despise our covenants and despise our heritage? When God allows this, it is because of us. It's because of our unbelief and because of our faithlessness. And we can't look back over the last hundred years, especially of our national existence, with any degree of pride or any degree of gratitude and say, well, Lord, we have kept what you gave us, we preserved it and we have fought for it. We've squandered it and we sold it and we bartered it away, like Esau did, his own birthright just for a mess of pottage. But this group of people angelic beings with weapons of slaughter in their hands, six of them were coming from the north. A specific judgment this time, and coming from Babylon. And the commission that they were given was a terrible one. It's probably easier for you in a way, because I'm going to be in Ezekiel just for a little while, if you want to just turn back to it. And in chapter 9, That's page 
they're given their commission in uh, verse 5 of the chapter where God says to them to go after the man who had the inkhorn. Now, now let's leave that man for the moment. We'll just leave the man who had the, uh, the writer's inkhorn. We'll just focus on the other six for now. God says to them to follow the man with the inkhorn and go through the city, he says. And do not let your eyes spare. Slay old and young, maidens, little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is my mark and begin at my sanctuary. It's a terrible commission. First of all, uh, to kill the whole city. That reminds us, just going back to what I said a minute ago, that when Nebuchadnezzar does this great evil, it wasn't actually his intention to really destroy the city as much as he did. Neither in... uh, Nearly 700 years later, in 70 AD, neither was it Titus' intention as the Roman general. He later became an emperor, but it wasn't his intention to thoroughly raise Jerusalem to the ground either. But nonetheless, it was God's intention. God's intention. And that tells us that here, when Nebuchadnezzar is doing this work of destroying the city and the temple and bringing judgment and death, it's God's work. God's work. If you have difficulty believing that, that tells me automatically that you don't believe in hell. Tells me that automatically. If you don't believe that suffering and death in this world can be the product of God's judgment, that tells me that you don't believe in hell. Which tells me too that you don't believe in the Bible. Which tells me that you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible most certainly has a place called hell. And he oversees what happens in hell. And it is his judgment that is inflicted, even if we brought that judgment on ourselves. God also tells these people not to have any pity in verse 5. As you go through the city with a message to kill, don't let your eyes spare, he says, and don't have any pity. And the reason that they're to have no pity is because God does it. In verse 10... God says, as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds upon their own heads. These things are awful in the sense of being terrible, fearful to contemplate, but they are the truth. And the last thing you can afford in this world is to be fogged off by a view of God and truth that will take these elements of the faith away, leaving you with a God who judges nobody and rewards everybody. You believe that and swallow that poison at the cost of your own soul. This is the truth of God. Kill all with no pity. You'll notice too that he says, begin at the church. Midway through verse 6, he tells them who to slay, and then he says, begin at my sanctuary. So the destruction of Jerusalem was to begin in the temple. You'll notice in fact that when the six men appear in verse 2, coming from the direction of the upper gate which faces the north, right at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 2, we're told that these six men stand inside the bronze altar. Now nobody sees these six men. 
It's important to understand that. Nobody sees that. This is heaven's point of view. This is what's actually going on, although no one on earth can see it. These six angelic beings are going in with a message of destruction. They are the ones supervising the whole desolation of Jerusalem. Done by God through his own angels. They stand beside the bronze altar. The bronze altar was, of course, the place where God's fire normally felt, fell. It was the only place in the tabernacle slash temple where the whole congregation could gather. To go any further into the temple just belonged to the priests, to them alone. Only they saw the candlestick. Only they saw the table with the showbread. Only they saw the golden altar of incense. But the bronze altar was for everybody. It's where, in the outer court, the whole church gathered to worship. Day by day, um, there's a constant sacrifice offered. Fire fell from heaven on that sacrifice. It was, it was heaven's fire that consumed that sacrifice because the fire that God originally sent was kept burning on that altar. So it was always understood to be heavenly fire that was consuming a sacrifice. But this time, the fire of God is going to fall upon the worshippers. Whatever kind of worshippers they are, the fire is going to fall on them. The judgment is going to fall upon them. The bronze altar is not going to speak of a sacrifice for them. It's going to speak of a, a judgment of God upon them. And how sad and how solemn that things should have got like that in Jerusalem, the city of our God. So there's a terrible judgment which uh, begins at the church. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll notice that God's revivals and his judgments always begin with his people. He first of all revives his own before he brings the dead to life. The first sign of revival is sparks of life amongst God's people. I made reference to that last week. It's when the church collectively begins to travail because the church is a woman. She's got to bring forth children, so she travails and she prays. And as I said last week, her breasts fill with milk. The, the preaching of the word begins to work. God prepares the feeding for these children that are to be born. So revival begins in his house, but so does his judgment. Peter tells us that. And here you'll notice in verse 6, after telling us that the judgment begins at the sanctuary, right at the end of verse 6 he says that they began with the elders who were before the temple. The elders here are the rulers in the church of God. In our day, ministers and elders. That's where God's judgment begins. They are the ones who oversaw the whole thing. They are the ones who permitted the whole thing. If you read Ezekiel 8, you'll discover the practices that had come into the temple, which God never permitted. They are first accountable. They are first dead. And their bodies lie in the temple. You'll notice, by the way, that the temple has lost its sanctity because God says in verse 7, he says to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Now, it's an amazing thing because death wasn't allowed in the temple. The, the only death that was allowed in the temple, the only dead body was the dead carcass of the animal that was slain. It's the only death. The, the dead were not permitted to be taken into the temple of God. It was a place for the living. 
But here God suddenly says, it doesn't matter anymore. He says, pile up the bodies where they fall in the sanctuary, in the holy place. And if anyone is going to say, why? Why are we going to allow such a defilement? God's answer is, because it's defiled already. I don't own it. I don't recognize it. That's why in chapter 10, you have another vision of the Ezekiel chapter 10, that is. You have a vision of the glory cloud of God's presence. I referred to this a few weeks back, if you remember. The glory cloud of God's presence that had been in the temple. Ezekiel sees a vision of that glory cloud rising out of the temple and going out the east gate uh, because it is moving towards where the people of God are, which is northeast in Babylon. God's going to be with his people in captivity. If you were, um, if you were a kind of um, nominal believer in those days, you'd have said, oh well, um, God's in the temple with his people, where they always were. But God is really angry and unhappy with the people that he's taken away to Babylon. The reality is completely the reverse. God is actually sparing the people that he's taken from Babylon. And the people that are under the curse are the people in the holy place and in the, in the temple. <laughs> You've got to watch how you interpret things. Watch how you interpret things. <coughs> Who'd have said that the people under the judgment of God were the people who had all this God left the temple. God's not at home anymore. And the temple, of course, in Ezekiel's day, was the gorgeous temple that Solomon had built, which was a gorgeous temple. A wonderful temple, full of gold and silver. And its real beauty, of course, lay in the presence of God inside it. But that's gone. Isn't it a thought to have a temple that's an empty shell? Isn't it a thought to have a professing Christian that's an empty shell? The Lord Jesus spoke of the Pharisees as being whitewashed on the outside but full of corruption inside. Isn't it a thought to have a, a church building amongst ourselves that's an empty shell because God's not in it anymore? And we think these things are linear and continuous and God says here, no they're not. When the time's appropriate, he says, I'll leave if that's what I deem fit. And who knows where God is present today. It's not the kind... We're looking for a sanctuary. We're praying for a sanctuary. We want to have a building. We do. But I'd rather be here with God's presence than anywhere else without it. And that's the bottom line. And may that always be true. May that be the way you see it and the way I see it too. But the fact of the matter is that the glory of God had left. But spare the sealed. That takes you to the seventh angel. This angel is clothed in linen. In verse 2. It brings us to a priest. He's got a writer's inkhorn by his side. Again, a priest who's taught in the law, taught to write the law, taught to teach the law. I don't think we can doubt really, perhaps, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he puts a mark on the foreheads of all the Lord's people. His command is to go through the city. It doesn't specify the temple. I don't know. I wouldn't want to read too much into that. But in a way it's a strange omission. Is it the case that the Lord's people are not there anymore? Just as they were not in Jerusalem 700 years later when Rome came into it. There's no Christians there. Is it the case that there were no Christians in the temple? They'd left. 
because the new God <coughs> wasn't there anymore. But this mark is a ceiling. Put a mark on the foreheads. Now this mark is visible, but it's only visible for the benefit of the angels. This is a picture we're given, remember. It's a picture. So they put a mark on the foreheads. That doesn't mean that Christians were walking around Jerusalem with a mark on their heads. Not at all. The real mark is inward, because the spiritual fact is that these are the people... Well, what is it that distinguishes them? Well, if you go to verse 4, you'll find what their real mark is. Their mark is inward, because the Lord said to them, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. That's the real mark. How would you have recognised a Christian in Jerusalem? Well, in a way, of course, their outward life matters. I'll come to that in a second. But here the mark is primarily inward. God is saying, I hear their sigh and I hear their cry. Their sigh is because of the abominations in Jerusalem. You sigh when you're burdened with something. When your spirit is full of grief. Uh, when you look around you at godlessness on every side. Uh, Jeremiah spoke about rivers of tears running down his eyes. Uh, Sorry, the psalmist spoke of rivers of tears running down his eyes when he saw how the wicked do not keep God's law. Jeremiah was, of course, the weeping prophet because he too wept at what Jerusalem had become just before this. Just before this in Ezekiel. He wept at what Jerusalem had become. And as a Christian... It will be one of the marks of you as a genuine Christian today that you sigh. You sigh. Sometimes you sigh because you don't know what to say and what to ask for. You don't really know what God's going to do, what his plan or purpose is. Is Is it mercy or is it judgment? You don't know. And sometimes the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with words which cannot be uttered. But the Lord... The righteous cry unto the Lord, he unto them gives ear, and they out of their troubles all by him delivered are. The Lord is ever nigh to them that be a broken spirit. Now here's a broken spirit. To them he safety doth afford that are in heart contrite. They, they see their own sin too. They see their own sin too. And the troubles that afflict the just in number many be, but yet at length out of them all the Lord doth set him free. So as well as this sigh, they are crying to God and they are crying, How long, O Lord? We're told of Lot in Sodom that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day at the conduct of the wicked. And whatever had become true of Lot, he had made a bad choice that had bad consequences on his family. Far worse on his family than on himself. And we all need to remember that Sometimes the choices that we make for, for our own comfort and for what we think will be our children's comfort, we need to remember that in terms of education especially, turn out to be for their destruction. His daughters were a, a sorry sight, um, but we are told of himself that he vexed his righteous soul from day to day at the conduct of the wicked. Now with all that in mind, um, just turn back to Revelation again. And uh, chapter 7. 
because these people are sealed too. Revelation 7 verse 3, Don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Who is it who are being sealed? Well, it's God's people. They're described as the new Israel. To remind us that God only has had one people down through the years, he still has one people. The reason our forefathers called the Jews the ancient people of God is because that's what they were, and they need to be regrafted. He still has a place, he's still supervising them, still watching over them as a people, but they need to be restored to the place of being his people. And that can only happen by being regrafted into the one people of God the true vine of Israel. So here is the new Israel of God. And you'll notice that God knows their number. Knows their number. John's given the privilege of hearing it. In verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, and it's 144,000. When he sees them, later in heaven he describes them as an innumerable company as I look at them he says I can't number these people but on the earth he hears a voice telling him from heaven I know the number of these people and it's 144,000 now there's all kinds of theories about who these 144,000 are you'll have if you, if you look at what Jehovah's Witnesses teach, which I don't recommend anyway, but if you do, there's all kinds of theories about that. But really, it's plain enough. But let me just notice, first of all, with you, that in one sense, none is missing. In another sense, some are missing. In one sense, none is missing, because there's a perfection here. Twelve is the number of the church. It always is in the Bible. Twelve tribes... Twelve sons of Israel, twelve apostles in the New Testament, twelve gates of the temple. Uh, it's the picture of the church. A thousand is ten times ten times ten. Three perfections together. Multiplied by twelve, you have a perfect church. A complete and perfect church. It's not a perfected church yet. Absolutely not. It's not perfected, but it is perfect. In number. In other words, the Lord knows them that are his. And not one of them is missing. In another sense, there are missing. From our side, from our point of view. You would expect all Israel to be there, but they're not. As Paul said, not all who are Israel are really of Israel. Just as not not all who are in the church are really of the church. Where's Dan? Look at verses 5 to 8. There's no mention of the tribe of Dan. Where's Dan? There's another list of the tribes too where Dan is missing. Where's it gone? Is it just a scribal slip? No, there's no scribal slips. The fact of the matter is that historically, Dan only survived by being pretty much annihilated. It was the tribe that became the doorway for idolatry all the time into the visible church of God. It became an apostate tribe, 
and the only few who were saved from it were effectively saved by allying themselves with another tribe and disappearing into it. Done. It's just not there. Uh, I, I can't pretend to have a full explanation of these things, but one thing I do notice is that there's always something missing. Even in the twelve apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's one missing. Now I know that the place is made up, but nonetheless, the one who heard so many promises about sitting on the twelve thrones of Israel and judging the twelve tribes of Israel, one of them was lost. One of the twelve who heard these things was lost. And Dan has disappeared. One thing, we don't know all the reasons for this, but one loud and clear message is this, make your calling and election sure. Make your calling and your election sure. Don't presume on it any day of your life, but work at your Christian life. Make it your labour to make your calling and election sure. Hang on to God's uh, justification in Christ and to sanctification by the Holy Spirit. But God knows the number. The next thing, very quickly, because I'm not going to uh, finish this, I'll I'll touch a little bit on it tonight, which probably leave me in the same predicament because I'll, I'll be going over my time anyway. But in any case... Let me just say a couple of things. As well as God knowing their number, you'll notice that they are actually sealed. And that's the word used here. It was a mark in Ezekiel 9. Here it is a seal. Now all the Lord's people are sealed. They're sealed inwardly by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God um, is a mark effectively on all of them. It's an inward mark because... Well, I'm sure you know what a seal was used for. Long ago, a seal was used to stamp documents, letters, things of that kind. A king would have a seal. Famously, a king would have a seal. And once the king stamped a document, that proved its genuineness. This is the king's property, the king's letter. Um, the genuineness, it, it proved it was his property, it belonged to him. And it also guaranteed protection. Whatever the king sealed, it was protected. You'll remember that uh, Pontius Pilate, famously, when he oversaw the, uh, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had the stone sealed. That's with a woman seal. Uh, of course, that wasn't enough to break the power of God, was it? It wasn't enough to keep the living Lord Jesus in his tomb, but nonetheless was sealed. Roman property, uh, don't tamper with this uh, at the peril of your life. Now, the Holy Spirit seals us too. The, the actual seal that he stamps on us is the image of Christ. It starts to be formed in every single believing person. The moment you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit starts to stamp the image of the Lord Jesus upon you. That image becomes more and more distinct as the work of sanctification goes on, but that is the image that he stamps upon you. And Paul describes this seal as having two inscriptions. On the one side... He goes to the divine side and he says, Written on every Christian is this, that the Lord knows them that are his. And on the other side of the seal, you've got let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I've wondered sometimes if it's best to think of the seal in another way. Think of the image of Christ on one side of the seal. And on the other side of the seal, think upon these two things with me. The Lord knows them that are his, safe on God's side. On our side, practically, 
let him who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Uh, because God's people are, are, are marked out just like that. Invisibly, God knows them, loves them, keeps them, preserves them. On their side, they make an effort to depart from iniquity. It's an interesting thing, and I'm just uh, closing with this really, but this seal is stamped on their foreheads. It's on their foreheads. And when you go to the very end times in Revelation 22, you'll find that every Christian in the presence of God has uh, the name of God on their foreheads. The name of God. The priest in the Old Covenant, the high priest, had a golden plate on his forehead and written on it was holiness to the Lord. Marked him out, consecrated, set apart for the Lord's service. This is all Christians. Uh, so in other words, if you were to ask, okay, invisibly God knows them. Uh, God protects, preserves them. They have the authentic work of the Spirit in their hearts. They are true Christians inwardly. Outwardly, how are they recognized? Because they depart from iniquity. Holiness. Holiness is the visible seal of the Christian. It's what marks us out from the world. It's what makes us different that we strive to live as Christ lived in this world. We long for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they shall be filled. Inwardly we sigh and we cry. Outwardly we depart from iniquity. And the whole church is sealed by the grace of God. And on the very last day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, before the winds of judgment are, before the final judgment comes in the vivid form in which we have it in Revelation 6, perhaps the winds have started to blow, but God's people are caught up. Those who are alive, First Thessalonians 4, they're caught up to meet with the Lord, and those who are dead in Christ, they too shall rise. In fact, they rise before those who are alive rise. The world is left to its judgment. Let's leave the earth there. Let's leave the church kept and preserved, authentic, loved by God, kept by God, delivered by God. We'll move tonight to the more pleasant atmosphere of heaven and see the people of God before the throne. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, grant us when there is indeed a judgment to come that we may be wise to escape it. And uh, those who are the Lord's will make haste and uh, flee the city of destruction and will begin that journey to the celestial city. We may indeed pass through difficulties, trials and temptations, a slow of despond and hill difficulty and giant despair. But at last we will enter that city where the streets are paved with gold. O oh, bless your people. And although they are all known and numbered to you, that number is unknown to us. So continue to bring into this kingdom such as should be saved. In the precious name of Christ, O oh Lord. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 9. Psalm 9.
verse 7. Well, I think I gave five stanzas to the presenter we'll listening for. Uh, verse 7. God shall endure for he, he doth for judgment set his throne. In righteousness to judge the world. Justice to give each one. And then he describes himself as a refuge. And in verse 10 he calls people to come into that refuge. They that know thy name and thee their confidence will please. In verse 12, we're told that when he inquires after blood, he remembers the humble folk who call upon his name. 7 to 11, stand in to sing.